This is from the Shoyoroku case 22. Yantaos bow and shout. The introduction. People are probed with words. Water is probed with a stick. Pulling out the weeds, looking for the way, is what is ordinarily applied. Suppose suddenly there leaps a burnt-tailed tiger. Then what? The case. When Yantao came to Deshan, he straddled the threshold and asked, Is this ordinary or is it holy? Deshan immediately shouted. Yantao bowed. Dongshan heard of this and said, Anyone but Yantao would hardly get it. Yantao said, All Dongshan doesn't know good and bad. At that time, I was holding on with one hand, and putting down with one hand. Hongxi's verse. Demolishing the oncomer, holding the handle of authority, tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. The nation has an inviolable law. When the guest serves reverently, the host becomes haughty. When the ruler dislikes admonition, the ministers flatter. The underlying meaning, Yantao asked Deshan, one upholding, one putting down, see the action of mind. So as some of you know, last weekend we were scheduled to be up at Daibosatsu for our spring sashin. But it never happened. Uh, being confined to our homes, we are dealing with a completely different reality. Having completely different experience from what we expected. Daibosatsu is an incredible place on many levels. Being up there for Sashin is highly conducive for deepening our practice. The silence and immense beauty of the location along with the structure of Sashin create an ideal ground for intimately experiencing the Buddha Dharma. Location, circumstances, structure may be conducive and helpful in some instances and not so conducive and helpful in other instances. But if we believe that realizing Buddha Dharma has anything to do with that, then we are at the mercy of location, circumstances, and structure. As you enter the gate of Daibosatsu, just before you begin to drive up the mountain on a two-mile dirt road, there is a sign that says, Drive with reverence and awe. And we may find it easy to do it over there since driving up this beautiful and serene creek evokes a deep sense of quietude within. And we feel that something in us is recognizing and responding to the beauty that surrounds us. If you've been to the monastery, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't been there, you probably have similar experiences of being in awe while driving or walking in a different part of the country or the world. 
Either way, this brings up an important question. Does the deep experience of being in awe arise out of the location? Or does it arise out of our capacity to have such an experience? If you look at this question for a while, you will come to the conclusion that without the capacity, we can have the experience. Which means that we may have the option, we may have the option to tap this capacity and allow it to manifest more freely regardless of location, regardless of time. Can we allow for that possibility? Maybe all we need to do is just have a reminder in the form of a small note that says, whatever you do today, do it with awe and reverence. And we can put that little note on the nightstand. So it's the first thing we see when we wake up in the morning and begin the day with a reminder to raise the intention to live this way, just for today, just for this moment, just in this instant. Whatever we do, wherever we are, make coffee, take out the trash, drive the car, have a conversation with someone, cook a meal, stand outside, look at the trees or the sky, whatever it is we happen to encounter throughout the day. Is it possible? Can we meet each of these so-called mundane instances in our everyday life with awe and reverence. Our capacity to live this way is always there and it's always unlimited. It's just that we have become quite stingy with it because of an underlying assumption that we are at the mercy of external conditions. I'm not there how could I feel this way? I remember some years ago when I was a kid, I grew up in Tel Aviv, and there was an area in the city which I never liked going to. I always, every time my parents would drag me there for something, I would have this sense of sadness, loneliness, and other feelings that I didn't like. So I remember trying to avoid going there, even later on as I was a teenager. And I remember at some point, I became very curious about it. What is it? Is it in the place? Is it in me? What is it evoking? Does it have to be this way every time I go there? And I started to examine it, and I decided to break through this. So I went there on purpose just to stand there and feel it. What's going on? Where is it coming from? What is it? And as I was standing there, I remember there was this space that developed between the place and the feeling, which little by little made me, made me realize that what I felt did not come from the place, and in fact, had nothing to do with the place. The place, the smells, the sights were more like the catalyst. But a catalyst is only a catalyst. It doesn't insert anything. It doesn't take out anything. Maybe it reminds us 
of something that we need to look at, examine, get in touch with. So after experiencing that, I remember this lightheartedness or lightness that, I, that came right after that. And I was able to free myself from what I felt at that place. And of course, it went way beyond that. It went into other aspects of life, other feelings. I did realize that what I feel is not from the outside. It is within, and it has to do, obviously, with not just capacity, has to do with our karma, has to do with what is evoked in us. But still, there's a lot of freedom, even when it is evoked in us, there's a lot of freedom in knowing that there's no need to point a finger. And whether it's a person or a situation, it's the same process, it's the same mechanism. And the same sense of freedom that can come out of that. Now there's no doubt that we are heavily conditioned by our past experiences, whether it is in this life or past life. But it doesn't mean that our conditioning has to always dictate the way we move through life. And the difference lies in taking the responsibility to go deep and examine the cyclical pattern of our automatic responses. Especially if it is something that we encounter over and over and over again. We have to raise the question, what is it? Where is it coming from? Rather than assume that it is because of the place I'm at, the person I'm talking with, and so on. In one of his sermons, the Buddha spoke about two ways of practice. And he said, you can practice like a dog, and you can practice like a lion. What does that mean, he says. If you throw a stick to a dog, the dog will run, get it, bring it back, and wait for it to happen again and again and again each time responding in the same exact way. On the other hand, if you throw a stick to the lion, instead of going after the stick, the lion will go after you. Or in other words, the lion will go directly to the source instead of getting trapped in repetitive patterns over and over again. It's a different kind of action, different kind of responsibility, or maybe different kind of seeing. And in terms of practice, this means to intercept our repetitive patterns of behavior and to have the courage to admit that what we feel is arising in us rather than from the person or the situation we encounter. It's a lot easier to point a finger. But it's a dead end. Well, only that. We feel trapped. As long as you are there, I am going to feel this way which means I may need to eliminate you or run away from you or run away from the situation or look for specific situation that makes me feel good and avoid what makes me feel bad. Where is the personal responsibility in living this way? Or is there any personal responsibility? Is there another way to meet the moment? We have the capacity of getting trapped in cyclical patterns and the capacity for experiencing each moment 
as never before, with awe and reverence. So what makes the difference? How do we move from a stagnant state of walking around in circles to a dynamic state of living within the freshness of reality? And it begins by taking the initiative to get off the fence and step forward without waiting for anything else to happen. It means not picking and choosing, not judging ourselves or what we encounter, not measuring, not quantifying. It means no more straddling the threshold, weighing our options. It means diving fully and wholeheartedly to the way life shows up at each moment without reservations. In fact, without ourselves. Today's koan mentions three prominent Chinese Zen teachers from the 9th century. Yantao, Deshan, and Dongshan. Although at the time of this dialogue, Yantao was not yet a teacher. And based on recorded stories, he spent some time at Dongshan's monastery before he ended up studying with Deshan and becoming his successor. So when Yantao came to see Deshan, he straddled the threshold and asked, is this ordinary or is it holy? What is this place? Is it worth my time? Should I enter? Should I leave? And this is a point many of us are familiar with. Straddling the threshold, vacillating, weighing our options, debating whether to enter or leave, whatever it is. Is it worth my time? Is it worth my energy? Is there a better place I should be at? I should practice at? Is there a better practice? Should I be somewhere else or do something else? These are very common questions that often cross our minds, create inner conflicts, and keep us in a stale and stagnant state while life goes on. Life does not pause. We do. Sadly, we do. So, after practicing for a while, it is also common to feel that Zazen is not working like it did at the beginning. And we may debate if practice is still worth my time, the time I put in. People sometimes say, I've been practicing for so many months, so many years, and I don't see the benefits, or I no longer see the benefits. It is no longer pleasant no longer relaxing, no longer peaceful. And if you happen to feel this way, I would say, congratulations. You are presented with a wonderful opportunity to truly transform your practice and truly liberate yourself from yourself, from the toddler within that always wants something and is never satisfied for too long. As long as we practice Zazen as a way to arrive somewhere else or become someone else, we will keep measuring our experiences in terms of success and failure or gain and loss. 
and the level of our commitment and determination will vary according to the feelings and thoughts that arise during the practice. And this way of practicing does not lead to long-lasting sense of liberation and will only blind us further. To practice zazen correctly, we need to radically change the way we perceive it. So instead of measuring our practice in terms of effort to effort to benefit ratio or pros and cons, we need to raise deliberate intention before every zazen period and sit as if it's the first time and last time we sit. It means to put aside any ideas of before and after and give it all you've got. Not standing on the fence, not waiting, not weighing, not measuring, and definitely not comparing this period to any other period. Not comparing any, this moment to any other moment, before or after. You know, when I wake up in the morning and I, I get on a cushion, I don't get involved in counting the years I've been practicing. I don't sit with an expectation of getting anything out of the practice. I sit and take full responsibility to maintain the resolve to sharpen the awareness and to open up to whatever arises without getting entangled in any of it. That's the effort. Not to judge, but to not get entangled in what arises, whatever it is that arises. And when we sit this way, we recognize that yesterday's zazen or last week's realization are only a burden to today's practice. Whatever was can only be a burden to what is and interferes with how deeply we experience and appreciate this moment in time. How can we bring what was to what is conceptually that is? Of course, there is an embodiment process, and the embodiment process does serve a purpose. It does work, for sure. It's just that it does not need to be, well, as long as it's conceptual, it's a burden. When it's real, it is actually forgotten. Anything we embody, we are free to forget. Anything we have not embodied, we are bound to have to carry it around. In Bendoa, fascicle from the Shobogenzo, Dogen writes, the practice of seated meditation is the proper and most straightforward gate for entering the way. People are already abundantly endowed with the Dharma in every part of their being. But until they do the training, it will not emerge. And unless they personally confirm it for themselves, there is no way for them to realize what it is. And Dogen also said, it is not measured by deep and shallow, only by the level of commitment and determination to the practice. And that means, again, diving fully and single-mindedly, single-heartedly, to each moment without hesitation, 
Of course, not just Zazi. Moment by moment life. Zazen is both the way and the destination. So Yanto stood there on the threshold, one foot in, one foot out, and asked, is this ordinary? Is it holy? He was debating about a moment in time and asking an important question about it. In our minds, there are many divisions and definitions, and it, and it seems natural to ponder or vacillate between different options. I have many options. Do I? What does it mean to have options? What does it mean to straddle the threshold? What am I not doing? What am I not appreciating? Where is my mind when I straddle the threshold? It seems in my mind to, that I have many options, but in reality, there's just this. So how do we snap out of the dreamland of having many options and thrust into reality that has nothing but this? Deshan immediately shouted, Ha! Yanta bowed. Does this work? Split second of bliss back to the dreamland. Back to me and my story. Back to the many options that I think I have. While life keeps going by. Moment by moment. Second by second. What do I do? Squander, squander, and squander. Deshan was known as a fierce teacher, and it is it said that he ordinarily beat the wind and hit the rain. Beat the wind and hit the rain. His other masters during the golden age of Zen, his grandmotherly kindness manifested in a way that we may find difficult to associate with the behavior of a kind and gentle grandmother. In this encounter, Yanta was not a novice in the practice, yet he was standing on the threshold, raising a divisive question, trying to initiate Dharma combat, prove his understanding, deepen his practice. Whatever was going on in his head, Yanta was standing on the basis of the assumption that there is a dividing wall that separates between ordinary and holy. In this case, the divide is about holy and mundane. And in our case, it may be about something else. But what matters most is to realize that a wall in the mind creates a sense of a divided reality, and a divided reality creates conflicts and unnecessary, endless suffering. Whatever the divide is about, it doesn't matter. There's a story that once a, a non-practitioner held a sparrow in his hand and asked the Buddha, is this sparrow I'm holding in my hand dead or alive? The Buddha stood by the threshold, one leg in, one leg out, and answered with a question. Am I about to leave? 
or enter? Am I about to leave or enter? It's a brilliant way to deal with the question. Yeah, I know how to do that too. But what happens when we straddle the threshold? If we don't feel sad when we look at this, then we are asleep. Yanta asked a question from a mind that creates walls and doors. And Deshan gave, I gave out a piercing shout from a place of no walls and no thresholds. And the footnote says, bursts his brain. Yanta was trying to meet Deshan on the same plane. And so he bowed deeply. But the footnote says, this is not yet being good halted. He wasn't quite there. He was on his way, but he wasn't quite there. An old master said, a clear mind has no nest. In Yanta's mind, there was still a remnant of divisiveness, a trace of agenda, and a tendency to create a nest. And this is what we find on the threshold. This is what we feel when we sit there, stand there, weighing our options. That is a nest, and a nest is a trap. And a trap hurts a lot. Later on, Dongshan heard about this and said, anyone but Yanta would hardly get it. When Yanta heard about Dongshan's comment, he said, All Dongshan does not know good and bad. At that time, I was holding on with one hand, putting down with the other. Yanta said, All Dongshan does not know good or bad. But not knowing good or bad, is he lost? Or are we lost straddling the threshold between what we think is right and what we think is wrong? For now, for this moment, tomorrow, something else. Still, same threshold, same imaginary threshold. Are we not drowning in the sea of yes and no as we vacillate through the journey of life? Dongshan was living in accord with the inviolable law which governs without judgments and divisions before good and bad arise in the mind. Or as D.T. Suzuki said, it is at the level of pre-logic, pre-good or bad, pre-you and I. And it includes what we perceive as good and bad. But while it includes it, it does not fall into any category. Can it be you, is the question. Well, the answer is yes. But when I'm on the threshold, what does it matter if the answer is yes? What does it matter if I am it and it is me? That's not the experience we're having. 
and based on the feelings, that's not it. The verse says, demolishing the oncomer, holding the handle of authority. Tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. The nation has an inviolable law. So Yanto came with a question and was dealt by a swift action of Deshan's authority. That's the piercing shout. But tasks have a manner in which they must be carried out. And so we have to bring up questions and raise waves where there is no wind. Or gouge a wound in a healthy flesh, as we say. Yet the nation has an inviolable law. One of the translations of Dharma is law, which is the self-organizing principle of the universe. Everything is subject to this universal law, and everything arises within it. Even the notion of walls and threshold, all of it, comes out of nowhere, goes back to nowhere. And it is nowhere, including the threshold. Yanto is expressing the investigation of reality, which we should do. And Deshan, with one piercing shout, is expressing reality before the investigation. Both expressions, right? both of them reveal varying degrees of understanding. Both of them are important. As the introduction says, people are probed with words, water is probed with a stick. And the stick is, is alluding to the way that monks would travel back then. They would travel many miles and they would have a stick to check if they can cross the, the river at that point. So they would put the stick in the water to check the depth of the water, the depth of the river. And people are probed with words. You ask a question, you get the answer. Very quickly you know the depth of the person's realization or spiritual maturation. One word, in fact one action can reveal everything. When the guest serves reverently, the host becomes haughty. When the ruler dislikes admonition, the ministers flatter. The underlying meaning, Yanto asked Deshan, one upholding, one putting down. See the action of mind. And these lines refer to the interaction between these great masters and the way they respond to each other to keep the Dharma wheel turning. Sometimes they would teach it from the position of the absolute, as you know from Koan. Sometimes from the position of the relative. But it is always the action of the one mind that has no nest and no divisions. This one mind also includes the mind that builds walls, takes sides, discriminates and judges what feels like oppositions. When used well, our discriminating consciousness is actually a wonderful ability that can help us navigate through life and enjoy the richness and abundance of reality. 
But as long as we are ruled by the ability to differentiate, we will keep building walls and we will keep getting trapped in one of the rooms or one side of those walls. All on the threshold, never realizing that it is just one giant house that includes all of it. And the last line of the verse says, one upholding, one putting down, see the action of mind. One song commented on this saying, in the present time, all novices who just shed their civilian clothes, that's us, while wearing civilian clothes, look at this line and say, how strange it is that Zen folks did not consent to explain things thoroughly for people. After all, all of it is the action of mind. So they become students clever of deceit. I say, one bit of mental action is a bit of compassion. If you don't encounter something, you don't know how to cope with it. How true is that? You might say that the fruit comes from within the flower. Sweet comes from bitter. Not what we expect not what we want. Who is the one who wants? This is a very strange and long journey. We call it practice. We strive to arrive at unity, yet nothing has ever been fragmented. And so to merge what has never disconnected, has never been disconnected, we have to go through all kinds of challenges, in a way create discomforts and drive ourselves and each other nuts before we realize that things have never been otherwise. Before we realize that it is our own creation. And the Buddha said that this is a long journey that takes time, courage and a great deal of relentless determination. But that should not deter us from staying on the path. He's just telling us, be prepared. Be prepared to take it all, because you can. Because you've got what it takes. And as long as we understand that to practice means to train, then time is not an issue, and the destination is not of any concern. Our task is to sharpen the ability to see the action of mind in its entirety and to never stop training, not for one second. Not for one second. You know, this pandemic has turned our lives upside down on, on so many levels and we're all affected by, by that in many ways. Health, financial uncertainties, of course, contribute to an underlying sense of anxiety and the stay-at-home order prevents us from being engaged with people we love and activities we find stimulating and enriching. All that can potentially create a sense of numbness and isolation with, which can give way to old habitual patterns to take hold and propagate in us. And we read about it in the news, we see it. Some of us may have friends or family that went back to old habits, old destructive habits, 
So it's common. And it's important to recognize that our daily interactions before the corona days acted as catalyst to the rejuvenation of flow, creativity, and general sense of aliveness, which may not be available right now. Meaning the catalyst may not be available right now. Of course, we are social beings and we need interactions, we need stimulations. But now that most of it is not readily available, do we straddle the threshold and wait for it to end, wait for something else to happen? Or do we take the responsibility, we take charge, the responsibility to and rejuvenate and restore the flow from within? Or do we abdicate the responsibility and wait for it to happen again? Some of us practice Aikido. We don't now, not in the way it used to be. We do it online, we do it by ourselves, but we don't practice with a partner. And yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us miss it greatly. I miss it a lot. Been doing it for over 30 years. It's part of my life. But I know from experience that that which Aikido brings out in me is not in Aikido, it's in me. And I know that I'm responsible to find the way to the source, to where it's coming from, rejuvenate it, allow it to guide me. And I do it in many ways, which means I never stop training, not for a second, being on the mat, being at home, Wherever we are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's within us. But as long as we think that, well, if I'm not doing that thing, then I cannot feel that way, then we convince ourselves that we have to wait. And it's very dangerous when we wait because all these old habits come back and take us for a ride, a long ride. And I see it. I, I, I have the privilege of talking to, to a lot of you personally. And I see how you change. Sometimes I see you and you are wide open and you are connected and you're at ease. Not because something happened, because you found your way home. And other times I see you and you're completely upside down completely trapped and I'm asking you what makes the difference why, why is it or how is it that some days you are free and some days you're completely trapped this is your task this is our practice maybe now more than ever we have to take the responsibility it's not because of what's going on. The way we feel when we go to Daibosatsu, maybe not right at the beginning, maybe after we go through dealing with the discomforts and the pain and the tightness and being tired, and then there is some opening that is created in us. That way, where does it come from? Where is it now? If you don't feel this way, take the responsibility to find it. Don't tell me or yourself, don't fool yourself to think that this is because of work or lack thereof. 
or because you're not seeing people you love. Of course we love them. Of course we miss them. Of course we can hug them. But are we doomed until we can do it again? Things change. When do they stop changing? How can we expect things to change only the way we want them to change? How can we expect it's not even possible? It's a made-up threshold that we create and we can see through right now. And using the Buddha's analogy to practice like a dog is to resign to the way it is, is to abdicate their responsibility and to allow old habits to rule the day. And they rule the day more so now than ever. And to practice like a lion is to recognize the situation, be in alignment with it, with clear eyes, and take a firmly rooted and decisive step forward. And take on the responsibility to find the endless living fountain of true wisdom which is inherent in each of us, regardless of what happens. The Nirvana Sutra talks about solid practice and illustrates it using three animals crossing a river, an elephant, a horse, and a, rab and a rabbit. When a rabbit crosses the river, it scoots across the surface. When a horse crosses the river, sometimes its feet touch the bottom and sometimes it is floating and the feet do not touch, which is neither here nor there. But when an elephant crosses the river, its feet always touch bottom firmly. Some commentators say that the Japanese word tete, which means thoroughly, comes from this story about the elephant crossing a river, elephant walking. And our Zen practice must be thorough and firm-footed like an elephant and agile and dynamic and courageous like a lion. Can we do both at the same time? Can we take the responsibility today, today, to not fool ourselves? No more excuses. Not to yourself and not to anyone else. Thank you.